Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. If what we read earlier here in chapter 25 gave you a sense of of deja vu all over again, uh, that's understandable. For three weeks now, we've studied these chapters here at the end of the book of Acts where Paul is in some courtroom and he's defending his ministry uh, from accusations made by the high priest and uh, elders in the Jewish Sanhedrin. Uh, The first time was before a Roman army captain. Uh, His name was Claudius Lysias. And then last week, um, before a governor named Felix, and then here in chapter 25, before this Roman governor Festus, who replaced uh, Felix, a guy named Portius uh, Festus. So this is not the Matt Dillon Festus, all right? Uh, You know who knows a lot about that is Joe Jackson. He told me a bunch of trivia. I did not know. I'm not a big Gunsmoke fan. I like Rifleman a little better. But if you need any questions about Gunsmoke, Joe Jackson He's your guy. But uh, Portius Festus. And and this is going to continue. Paul is going to share the gospel and his testimony of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. He's going to do it before King Agrippa uh, in the next chapter. And eventually in the capital uh, of Rome uh, before all is said and done. And while this might seem similar to previous accounts, there are some new things here for us in chapter 25 for us to learn from God's word this morning. Let's ask God's Holy Spirit to um, speak to us through his word this morning. Father, thank you for uh, bringing us together, and I thank you for your, for your word. Uh, there, there are times that I, I know I even take it for granted, and it's an amazing thing that you reveal to us your love for us, what it is you want from us, Uh, what you desire for our lives to be like. Uh, Thank you for communicating that. It's a grace from you that we have your word. I pray it would be precious to everybody here. Even in this little time we have together this morning as we pour into chapter 25 and see what it is you want us to learn here. Please use your word uh, in the way that your word promises it will be used. That... um, No word would return void. I pray that our hearts would be open this morning. Uh, They'd be soft and sensitive, moldable by you. Use your word to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We ask in his name. Amen. So in the uh, opening verses here, uh, chapter 25, we learn once again of an attempt on Paul's life. We're introduced to this Roman governor, Festus, who replaced Felix. Uh, We were introduced to him at the end of chapter 24, actually. And and then verse 1 of chapter 25 lets us know that just three days after Festus uh, got into office, he headed down from Caesarea, the Roman capital of the province, to Jerusalem, the most important city of the province. And that shows us something about this new leader. Um, Felix, not a good man. We talked about that last week. Festus, at at least he's a fairly good governor in this way with honorable uh, character. Um, He wants to know what his constituents' needs are, and so he heads heads to Jerusalem. Uh, He realizes he's in charge of a province that's very difficult to govern. Uh, The Jewish people were known for uprisings against Roman rule. 
And so he immediately heads to its most important city, down to Jerusalem, to meet these Jewish leaders, to introduce himself and listen to their concerns. And then if you look at verse 2, the Jewish high priest, he informs Festus of what is their top concern currently. It's the Apostle Paul. I mean, Paul has been under house arrest now in Caesarea for, for two years uh, under Festus's predecessor, Felix. Uh, and these Jewish religious leaders, they want Festus to finally bring uh, Paul before the court and make a judgment in this case. No more delays. At least, at least they tell Festus that is what they want. We find out in verse 3 what their true desire actually is. In verse 3, it says they desired for Festus to send for him to Jerusalem, laying in wait to kill him. Now, if you remember back in chapter 23, there was a group uh, of at least 40 uh, individuals who took a vow. They were not going to eat. They were not going to drink until they had killed Paul. But he had been whisked away in the middle of the night uh, by the Roman soldiers to Uh, I guess you could call it the safety of house arrest up there in Caesarea once they were made aware of this plan. And, uh, you know, I suppose those 40 fellows are getting pretty hungry and thirsty by now. It's been two years, right? Uh, No, I'm joking. But uh, most of them have broken that vow long, long ago. But what is interesting is that back in chapter 23, uh, the Jewish Sanhedrin leaders, they had just gone along with that plan. They had approved it. But here in verse 3, of chapter 25, they're actually the ones spearheading it. Yeah, let's bring Paul down. We're going to lie in wait to kill him. And listen, that's a great reminder that religion in and of itself, it doesn't necessarily make you a decent person. Um, Pastor David Guzik wrote, I mean, these were religious men. These were religious leaders. And their actions show the danger of a religion that is detached, that is not in true contact with God. I mean, if your religion makes you a liar or a murderer, uh, there's something wrong with your religion. And it's clear that while these religious people may have considered themselves religious, what they were in need of desperately was a relationship with Jesus Christ, salvation through him. And before we move on to verse 4, can we also pause to just consider God's sovereignty here in Paul's imprisonment? Um, can we even call it God's grace? And there's a lesson for us there too, Christian. Um, being in prison might not feel like an experience of God's grace in our lives, but God's reminding us here of his protection of Paul for two years against the murderous intentions of these religious leaders. I mean, this wasn't something new. They had wanted to murder Paul for two years and they couldn't get to him because God was sovereignly protecting Paul. You know, and at least initially, Uh, I mean, Paul might have been tempted to see his being under house arrest as uh, an obstacle for two years. Lord, I want to go share the gospel. You told me I was going to Rome. How come I'm not there yet? We know Paul had wanted eventually to make it to the farthest reaches of the then known world, to to Spain, and bring the gospel there. And, you know, I have no doubt that Paul, uh, maybe in those first few weeks or months, sitting there for two long years waiting for his trial to be adjudicated, probably thought, God, this is a big obstacle uh, for what you've called me to do. But really, God gave him a two-year-long season of protection and rest and replenishment after years of strenuous missionary service. He's been on three mission trips already. God sovereignly protecting Paul from evil, but also preparing him 
for the opportunities that were ahead and the challenges in the years ahead as God would guide Paul to Rome. Let's head back to verses 4 and 5. Festus decides against uh, this request that the Jewish Sanhedrin, they say, come on, bring them down to Jerusalem. Let's have a trial here. Festus decides against that. We're not told why. Uh, but Festus tells them no. And then he heads back up to Caesarea himself. And he tells the Jewish leaders, if you want to bring charges against Paul, come up there. All right. And uh, that might not be what they wanted to hear, but they go to Caesarea. They do bring charges against Paul. And in verse 7, it kind of summarizes the accusations. It says, they laid many and grievous complaints against Paul. But as Luke notes at the end of verse 7 there, none of them they could prove because <laughs> they weren't true. And then listen to Paul defend himself once again in verse 8. Neither against the law of the Jews, neither against the temple, nor yet against Caesar have I offended in anything at all. And verse 9 lets us know that Festus desired to find some compromise here. He said he wants to do the Jews a pleasure. So he's like, you know, I'm going to try this case, but maybe if I move it, the location of it, back to Jerusalem, uh, the Jews, I can make the best of both worlds uh, type of thing. So he asked Paul a question. All right, in verse 8, or verse 9, he says, Will thou go up to Jerusalem? Paul, will you go to Jerusalem and, and there be judged of these things before me? Not, not a good idea. We already know why, right? Because the Jews are, are going to lie in wait trying to assassinate Paul on that journey. And um, not a good idea. That's definitely Paul's take on um, this plan compromised by Festus. And so then in verses 10 uh, through 12, we learn of the appeal in Paul's case. And now it seems it did not take Paul very long to make uh, this decision and answer that question that was posed by Festus. There's no record here of Paul deliberating or even asking, hey, can I have a little time to pray about this decision? And that's a lesson for us too. Now, one of my favorite attributes uh, about God is, is his sovereignty. Listen, there is such a peace <laughs> you can have in your life. There, there is such a serenity you can experience as follower of Jesus knowing that uh, we have an always good and always gracious God and he's sovereignly in charge of every single situation in our lives. There's nothing that's outside of his control. Um, knowing and acting according to God's promise to us in Romans 8.28, right? That those, for those who love God, <laughs> for those are, who are the called according to his purpose, we, we can know that all things work together for our good and for God's glory. Uh, but that doesn't mean, and it shouldn't result in our lives in some kind of uh, laid back uh, inactivity on our part. Uh, that would be a wrong conclusion to the reality of God's sovereignty. A wrong conclusion to our faith in God's sovereignty. The, the idea that just because our God is sovereign and, and he is in control, that you and I as Jesus followers, um, we, we can just lay back, let go, and let God, and just coast through life without any kind of action on our part. I want you to consider what Paul does here, because if there's ever in Scripture a human author that God used to pen parts of his word, if there's ever a theologian who more solidly understands and holds to and loves the reality of the sovereignty of God than the Apostle Paul, I couldn't tell you who it is. But Paul replies, in verses 10 and 11 to this offer from Festus, he replies this way. I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews, I had done no wrong as though thou very well knowest. Uh, for if I be an offender, if I've committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. But if there be none of these things whereof they accuse me, no man may 
deliver me unto them. I appeal unto Caesar. Now, that's an immediate response from Paul to Festus's question. Do you understand what's going on here? I mean, this is so much more than Paul being worn out after two years of, of having no action in his case. Uh, this is not uh, Paul at the end of his rope after two years of false accusations and house arrest. This is Paul acting on his own behalf in, within the sovereign will of God to do the sovereign will of God. What was God's will for Paul's life? Share the gospel, right? And then specifically, we've been told specifically in, in two places, once when he was first saved and then more recently when he was in prison down in the Roman army barracks, I think back in chapter 23, um, God revealed his will to Paul. He's in that Roman army prison cell. He's just been rescued from that Jewish mob a couple chapters back. Who appears to Paul in that Roman army cell? It's Jesus, right? Jesus did. And, and, and what did he tell Paul? Be of good cheer. You remember that? He said tarsi, one little word. Be of good cheer. One of Christ's most common phrases to his followers. Take courage, Paul. And this is what Jesus said. For as thou hast testified of me here in Jerusalem, so must thou also bear witness in where? Rome. It was God's will for Paul to go to Rome. Uh, share the gospel there. And Paul knew that. Now, Paul didn't know when. This was at least two years ago that God revealed his will to Paul that way. Jesus did. Uh, Paul didn't know when exactly. But um, with the Jews taking a life or death vow to kill you, and having this Roman governor Festus seemingly willing to make a compromise with them, uh, I wonder if Paul thought there's no time like the present. I appeal unto Caesar. Let's go to Rome. I know it's God's will for my life. And what we can learn here, and what, what I want to stress to you this morning, is that as followers of Christ, we, we can rest fully in the sovereign power and guidance of our good and gracious Lord. And you can do two things at once. You can rest fully in God's sovereignty and we can also act within his will at the same time. Don't, don't fall to one of two extremes. Don't, don't fall to a resignation type of laziness where, yeah, praise the Lord, God is sovereign. He'll take care of everything. I'm just going to sit here. Don't be like the Thessalonians. Jesus, come back. We're just going to hang out here until you come back. Um, don't fall to a faithless and futile struggle for self-preservation. On the other end of the spectrum, rely on solely on action on our part, our human strength or human ingenuity. No, let's do what Paul did here. We discern God's will. We discern God's will. We trust and rest in God's will for our lives. We trust and rest in God's timing. And then we act. We act according to God's will and timing. It's where blessing is. Let's go back to verse 12. What's the response of Festus to Paul's appeal? Festus says, you want to go to Caesar, Paul? Yeah, that's your right as a Roman citizen. Festus replies, have at it. T to Caesar, thou shalt go. I think Festus was probably a little relieved that he's not going to have to deal with this, at least initially. And then we're introduced in verses 13 through 27 uh, to King Herod Agrippa. Paul is going to testify before him in chapter 26. Lord willing, we'll look at that next week uh, before he is sent up to Rome. Uh, this is not a judicial event in the rest of chapter 25 or in verse 26. King Agrippa has no jurisdiction over Paul or his case. Festus just has Paul testify before King Agrippa. First of all, because Festus needs some advisement for Paul's transfer up there. 
The advice that's needed, let's go to the very end of the chapter, uh, verse 27. It says, for it seemeth to me, this is Festus speaking, for it seemeth to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not withal to signify the crimes laid against him. Do you understand? Uh, This is Festus telling King Herod Agrippa, I have to send Paul and his case up the court system, all the way up the court system to the Roman Emperor Caesar. At this time, I believe it's Emperor Claudius. You'll see the name Augustus there. It's just a general name for any of the emperors. Uh, by the time Paul gets there, it's going to be Nero. Not the crazy Nero yet. I mean, he's crazy the whole life, but he hasn't real crazy yet. Uh, and Festus is like, King Agrippa, I don't know what to tell him. <laughs> How am I supposed to send this guy? It's his right. I need to do it. How am I supposed to send him up there? I got no reason for him being charged. I have no reason for him being on trial. And that's kind of an important factor. Let's go back to verse 13. It says, After certain days, King Agrippa and Bernice came unto Caesarea to salute Festus. So um, we don't have this information given to us here by Luke, but uh, history, historical documents, they let us know a little bit more about these two individuals mentioned here. King Herod Agrippa, this is the great-grandson of the King Herod who was killing all the babies in Bethlehem. All right, this is the the grandson of the King Herod that had John the Baptist beheaded. And this is the son of the King Herod who had the Apostle James killed way back in Acts uh, chapter 8, I believe. Um, 12, Acts chapter 12. So that's quite a family history this King Herod Agrippa has, isn't it? I mean, that's your your dad, your granddad, your your great-grandpa. And he's not a whole lot better. Uh, While he was, to the Roman governor, uh, a source of help in this situation, he was an expert in Jewish customs that could maybe shed some light uh, and help Festus better understand this whole situation. He brought with him his sister, Bernice, and historical accounts describe their relationship as, uh, as incestuous. And she had previously been married to her uncle before she was King Herod Agrippa's wife. Uh, She would later be a mistress of a couple of Roman emperors. And verses 14 and 21, they're simply a summary of what we've already studied the past few weeks, a repetition uh, of Paul's case. Festus is is briefing King Agrippa here about the whole situation. He says, I've inherited this case from my predecessor Felix. And then Festus explains the issue to the best of his ability. And then he basically pleads for King Herod Agrippa's advice in communicating up to Rome why he's going to be sending Paul there in the first place. And then in verse 22, King Agrippa tells Festus, I will, I'll hear the man myself. I'd like to hear about this. And Festus replies, sounds good. How about tomorrow? And then we have this clear, really almost laughable contrast when they bring everybody together the next morning in verse 23. In come King Herod Agrippa and Bernice. It says with, with great pomp in verse 23. They, they come into the Roman palace where this governor Felix is, along with chief captains and principal men of the city. And at Festus' commandment, Paul also was brought forth. I want you to try to picture this now. You've got the Roman provincial palace where, where Felix li- or Festus lives and reigns. You've got all the chief captains in the uh, Greek the designating Roman military officers that are in charge of a thousand. 
So you've got at least 4,000 men plus their leaders and all the principal men of the city. So all the high and mighty, all the movers and shakers there in Caesarea. And then you have his royal highness, King Agrippa and Bernice. They come in and then you got Paul. <laughs> you got humble prisoner, little old apostle Paul. That's quite a scene. And in verses 24 through 26, Festus introduces the situation. He says, you see this man about whom all the multitude of Jews, they've dealt with me both at Jerusalem and also here. They, they cry that he ought not to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death and that he hath appealed to Augustus, I have determined to send him of whom I have no certain thing to write unto my Lord, talking about to the emperor Caesar, I brought him forth before you, especially before thee, O King Agrippa, that after examination I might have something to write. And this record of the, the Roman governor's speech here, it's not just a historical fact that God has Luke provide to us. Uh, this record is a defense. It's an apologetic to argue that Christianity was not some trouble-causing faith. Uh, that Paul and other Jesus followers in their obedience to the Great Commission, they had done nothing illegal. They had done nothing immoral. It's also a record of a cry of help from Festus to everyone who was there. It's him saying, I really don't know what to do here because I can't find anything that should result in this person being in prison, much less found guilty and be killed. So how am I supposed to send him and his case up to Caesar in Rome? Help me. Now, next time we're together, we're going to hear Paul's testimony in chapter 26 before King Agrippa. But this morning, um, let's think about this. Uh, is the Almighty, Sovereign, Lord in control? Is he? I mean, that's what his word tells us. Psalm 115, verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. What a precious truth. Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Daniel 4, 35, this might be one of my favorites. God does as he pleases with the army of heaven and with all the peoples of the earth. There's no one who can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? I don't know what you might be facing this morning, what circumstances are piling up against you, or maybe like Paul, what prison you might have been in for a good while now, but I know what God just told us there in Daniel 4.35. I know that God does as he pleases with the army of heaven and with the peoples of earth. There's no one who can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one. So don't do that. Don't, don't be the one to, to ask that question. If you have trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, um, don't doubt his power. Don't doubt his goodness to you, even in whatever it is you're going through. I want you to remember, for, for your good and for his glory, remember what God promises us in that verse we referenced earlier in Romans 8, 28. We know. It says we know. We know that all, all things, not everything except what you're going through, all things work together for good, to them that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Do you know that? That's what God's word says you can know. Do you know that? Then this is his promise to you. Do you love him? That, that's who that promise is to. Not to everybody. It's to those who are his, to those who love God, and those who are called according to his purpose. If, if that's you, then Jesus speaks to you this morning in Romans 8.28. And you might think, but how? <laughs> well, I feel you, because I've wondered that before. 
Um, that's a precious verse, Romans 8, 28. But um, are there times when our problems scream louder than that promise? They do in my life at times. And I've told you all this before, but, but let me share with you what undergirds that uh, Lifeway bumper sticker verse. That's what I call Romans 8, 28, right? It's what a precious verse. Put it on a coffee mug, put it on your, because it is. But there are times when our problems scream louder than that promise from God. And God is so gracious. Just a few verses later, he gives us something that just boosts. I'll call it, gives that verse some oomph. In Romans 8, 31 and 32, Paul says, what shall we say then to these things? Meaning, what should be my response to this reality of God's great love for us? And that God is working all things together for us. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What can be against us? And I want you to pay attention to verse 32 because here's the oomph, right? For when you're like questioning Romans 8.20, how in the world, God, could this be working together for my good and your glory? Romans 8.32 says, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him then also freely give us all things? Do you understand? I mean, when our problems are so seemingly um, monumental compared to what God has promised, when our problems are louder than that beautiful promise in Romans 8.28, then Christian, embrace Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, how will he not also with him freely give you all things? Jesus is saying, look to the cross. When you doubt my goodness, when you doubt my sovereign goodness and power, look to Calvary. Remember a God who loves you so much. Remember a God who is for you so much that he did not even spare his own son in order to make you his child. A father who did that, he's going to also freely give you all things. He will freely bring you through all things. He will make sure that all things are working together for your good and for his glory. You know, for at least the last four chapters of Acts, Paul has been facing problems. And if we're honest... um, and we did an evaluation. They're probably on a scale far more serious than what we usually face. I mean, he's been through years-long attempts on his life, people trying to, to kill him. He's been through a, a seemingly slow deliverance uh, out of a prison and into freedom, people slandering him. And yet, Paul trusted in the sovereignty of God through it all. He discerned God's will, and he trusted and rested and God's sovereign will for his life. And then when it was time to act, he acted according to God's will, never in opposition to it, never outside of it. And, and what we're talking about here is, is trust. Is your God worthy of it? We're talking about, uh, about faith. You know, I once uh, heard, and I think it's true, that the root, you pick a sin, doesn't matter what sin it is, any one of the Ten Commandments, any sin, you pick a sin, and really at the root of the sin, maybe a sin before the sin is pride. I think that's probably true. But I think, like, um, probably just as true is that at the root of every sin is faithlessness. The opposite of pride is faith. It takes humility, so the opposite of pride would be faith. I mean, at the root of every sin is you and I going, God, I don't know if you are good. So, yeah, I might, I might need this, and I might need it now. I might want this and want it now. And um, I'm not trying to be rough on you this morning or harsh, but as your pastor, in order to do justice to God's word, 
uh, let me just remind you what we're to do when God and his word confronts us with sin in our life. Even if that sin is something that we might not think of as sin. Well, I just wish I had more faith. I don't have enough faith right now. I feel a little faithless. Well, not having faith is, is sin. But what are we supposed to do when we're confronted with sin? And we run to Jesus Christ and we run to that cross and we confess it. We say, Lord, I don't. <laughs> and I ask for your forgiveness. And I know the blood of Christ forgives me. And, and I leave forgiven and I leave new. Will you do that? Will you commit to do that this morning? I mean, tell the Lord that right now as we have time to respond to God's word and the Holy Spirit's wielding of it in our lives this morning. Tell God, you are so worthy of my trust. I believe you're sovereign. More than that, I believe you're sovereignly good. You're good. You're worthy of my trust. You're worthy of my rest. And right now, um, yeah, this doesn't feel good. Right now, I, I feel like I'm surrounded by the presence of my enemies. But I also know that's exactly the kind of situation where you prepare a table before me. And so I'm going to trust you. This morning, ask God this, Christian. God, when, when doubt or fear, um, when they raise their ugly head, will you remind me of the cross like you did in Romans 8, 32, so that I can believe your precious promise in Romans 8, 28, when I, when I struggle to believe that you are truly sovereignly working all things together for, for my good and for your glory. Uh, when I struggle to believe that, Lord, take me to the cross. Take me to Calvary. Remind me that you who did not spare your own son to save me, you'll never fail me. You'll never forsake me. You've got a plan. You've got a purpose in all of this for my good. Tommy, will you come and lead us in a time to respond to God's word? Ask the Lord that. Say, Lord, show me your will. Help me to discern it. I'll trust in it. I'll rest in it. I'll commit to act according to it.